Uh, Becky and I, my wife and I, one of the things that we love to do just on our free time, we have three kids, so there's not much of that free time, but when we get it, we love to go hiking. And hiking looks a little different for us now that we have kids than it did when we were just married, and it looks even different than when Becky and I would, would hike without kids. It looks different than when I would hike without her before we got married. But one of the places we loved to hike when we were living out west was we loved to go to Yosemite. Just beautiful. The Yosemite Valley is gorgeous. So many great areas to hike, things to see, just extravagant. And one of the highlights, if you're familiar with Yosemite, one of the highlights is Half Dome. And Half Dome is just this monster rock that feels like it's just right smack in the middle of the Yosemite Valley. If you hike Half Dome, if you want to hike it, it takes you anywhere between 10 to 12 hours. About half of that's up, and then the other half will bring you down. It's about an eight-mile hike from the valley to the top, and then you do have to come back down. So you're talking about a 17-mile round-trip hike. You'll experience 4,800 feet of elevation change. It is way, way, way up there. It is a strenuous hike, but it is gorgeous. In fact, I've hiked it three times. One of those was with Becky, and it is the view that you see from the top. There's nothing like it. And so you get, like I said, about halfway, because you do have to come back down, so you hike close to eight miles, a little over eight miles. You get there, and you're not quite to the top. I mean, it's still gorgeous, but it's, it's nothing compared to the top. But you get to this part where you have 400 feet left of hiking to do. And this space is known as the cables when you hike Half Dome. 400 feet left, but it is the most difficult section of the hike. In fact, that last 400 feet is unbelievably intense. Here's why they call it the cables, because it feels like it is straight up. It's not, but it really does feel like it. So as you're looking, you, you are exhausted, you are tired, you have hiked a little over eight miles, you are at now 4,400 feet up of elevation change, and you're looking at the last 400 feet, and that's where something called doubt starts to creep in. The first time I hike this, we get up there, and I'm like, wait, that's next? There's nothing that can prepare you for it. Even though you talk about it and people that have done it before, make sure you bring gloves and just get it in your head. You're going to have these cables because the only thing keeping you and falling to your death are those cables. There's some two-by-fours placed periodically throughout the 400 feet, but you are truly holding on for dear life as you continue to climb the last 400 feet of Half Dome. I mean, I'm not a rock climber. I am a recreational hiker. And so this last 400 feet makes you start to question whether you should do this or not, right? It's those doubts that says, I don't know if I should do this. That doesn't seem very safe. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of room for error there. Then the question is, well, should I even, even if I could, should I even climb this last 400 feet? Because there's a part of me that as I'm standing there looking at what is before me, I'm thinking, hey, this is a quite an accomplishment. Right? I made it this far. I can see the top from here. That's good enough. Let's just call it a day and go back home. We still have another eight and a half miles down now. But then there's that other side that tells you, well, we've made it this far. Right, we, we, we are so close. We only have 400 feet left. Maybe we should just kind of push through. Let's make it work. Let's make it happen. So I've hiked it three times, and I'll tell you the third time I was in that place of, you know what? I've been there, done that. I do not need to risk my life on this thing again. So out of three times, I hiked to the top, did the cables two times, but, and once you get up there, I told you, I say it over and over and over, the views are incredible. It's only in that place where you can hike up and you get to, I'll show you, this is me at the very, very top, uh, the first time I hiked it, where you get to hang your feet 
over a cliff that's 4,800 feet down. Oh, man, it was fun. See, you look at that, and then that's, this was before we were married, and so now looking back on it, it's a, you know, I could do it, but really, should I? Should you do it? And Becky has her two cents on what she thinks about me in, in that moment, but it's gorgeous up there, absolutely gorgeous, but that last 400 feet is a make or break it. That last 400 feet, those doubts begin to sneak in, and you're thinking, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I should do this. That's, that's risky, and, and I don't know if I can make it. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. What if I fall? What if, what if I lose my grip? What if, and all those scenarios begin to play in your head, and here's what happens. I mentioned it earlier. When those doubts start to find their way in your head and your heart, those doubts will direct you or drive you one of two directions. Those doubts will drive you to finish strong, or those doubts will drive you to go home. Which way will they drive us? In our spiritual lives, and if you're a believer and a follower of Jesus, there's something around doubts that makes us feel like we should not have them. Understand, doubts are more than okay. Doubts are drivers. They can actually move us closer to Jesus if we allow them to. But for some reason, and I'll apologize on behalf of all the churches that have made guilt and doubt associated with one another. For some reason, we feel like we shouldn't have doubt. And if we have doubt, we're not as holy as somebody who doesn't have doubts. No, doubts are okay. Allow them to be a driver in your life. Allow them to lead you. But that's where we need to look at is where are they going to lead you? So the Jesus I know can handle my doubts. The Jesus I know most certainly can handle my doubts. He's a big boy. He can handle my questions and my concerns, and I want to believe, but I'm not really sure how this works out. That last 400 feet seems pretty impossible. The mountains in our lives, we look at it and say, I don't know if I can make it that last 400 feet. That last 400 feet is the hardest part. I don't know if I can make it. I don't know if I'm going to be able to push through it. I don't know how this is going to work out. Those doubts begin to find their place in our head and our heart. But I'm telling you, Jesus, he can handle our doubts. They're drivers. May they drive us to Jesus, not drive us home, drive us away from him. So that's what we want to figure out. How do we allow our doubts not to suppress them, not to ignore them, but to embrace them, recognize them, own up to them, say, yeah, 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 I've got plenty of doubts. There's a lot I don't know. How do we allow our doubts to actually drive us, direct us, move us closer to Jesus instead of away from him. So if you have your Bibles, head over to Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at a story that does just that, a story of doubt where a man is going to be looking Jesus in the eyes and basically saying, I don't believe you can do this. Mark chapter 9, the context, if you read a little bit prior to, Jesus has gone away to have some rest and to be with his three closest disciples. And while they're away, there's a commotion happening with the rest of the disciples and the crowd that is around them. So you can imagine Jesus comes on this scene. It's like when you go out of town, you come back and you just, you're assuming that your house is in good order, that everything is nice the way you left it. If you go on a date with your spouse, you come back and you expect your kids to be in bed asleep already. Instead, you come back and it's mayhem. Kids running and screaming around all over the place. That's what Jesus comes back to. He and his three disciples, three closest ones, went away. They come back. Here's the scene Jesus comes back to. When they, that's Jesus and his, and his three closest, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. So what he comes back to, after some rest and time away, he comes back and everybody's bickering. 
Everybody's all back and forth, arguing back and forth, back and forth. And you're like, he's just, what is going on? I wasn't gone that long. It says, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. So you have one group of people that are just arguing about something. It's a big mess. It's chaos. They don't, Jesus doesn't know what's going on quite yet. You got another group of people that are kind of watching. They're more spectators. They see Jesus and they're filled with wonder, it says, and they run over to him. Jesus finally calls a timeout, says, whoa, 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 whoa. Blows the whistle, tries to figure out what's going on. Says in verse 16, what are you arguing with them about? In other words, what in the world is going on, he asked. Verse 17, a man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashing his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they, and say these two words with me, but they could not. They couldn't do it. Jesus' response, you unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now let me talk about Jesus' response for a moment. I believe that he's talking more so to his disciples than this man that says, I just am asking for some help. Because who could not heal this boy? Who was it? The disciples. Here Jesus is away. Three of his closest are with him. This man brings his son who is obviously hurting and needs healing. Brings him to, well, Jesus isn't here. So how about his disciples? Those disciples were with Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They learned from Jesus. So surely they can do something like Jesus. And they, what was the two words again? They, they could not. So now they're arguing over why they couldn't and who is to help and how do we help. And now it's become this big ordeal. And Jesus calls time and says, whoa, 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 whoa. And I believe he looks at his disciples and says, you unbelieving generation, how long? Here's the rhetorical question. How long do I have to be with you? How long do I have to explain this to you? How long, how long? In other words, what are you not catching on? <laughs> what do I need to help you understand? What do I need to still explain to you? Begins to walk it through but here you have this desperate man, this desperate father who wants nothing more than, I just need help for my son. I just need somebody that will help my son. And the disciples couldn't do anything about it. The desperate father is looking for somebody that could do something about it. A desperate man and disciples that couldn't help. Here's what happens next, verse 20. So they brought him, the boy, the, the father's son, they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. I believe that would be one of the hardest answers a father could give. From childhood. How long has he been like this? Since we can remember. It's been this way his whole life. It's the only life we know. It's the only life we're aware of. The mountains, the last 400 feet that are currently in front of you, how, how long have you been battling that? For as long as I can remember. How long has the finances been a struggle? I've lost count of the years. How long has it been tense in, in your relationships? Man, since, since it began? It's hard to put a start on it when it feels like it's all, it's been what's going on all the time from childhood. It's the only life that we have known. From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And look at that last part. Look, look at it again. He explained, here's the problem. You can hear the defeat in the voice of this father when he said, from childhood. It's just 
all we've ever known. We're just looking for help. There needs to be someone that can please do something. And he looks at Jesus in the eyes and he says this last line. But if, if you can do something, if you can do anything, would you just help us? Would you just take pity on us? That if statement is tied to his doubt. Because that's what we do, right? When we have doubts, I don't think I can make this last 400 feet. I mean, I know I've made it this far, but I don't think I can make it up there. This seems possible from here to there. That's, that's just too big. That's just too much. I, I don't think I can do it. It's, it is impossible. No one could do that, right? See, our doubts then fuel the what ifs or the if statement. The doubts lean into the, well, Jesus, if you can do something. If you can do anything. And understand what that if statement means. It's this father looking into the eyes of Jesus and saying, Jesus, this might be above your pay grade, but if it's not, would you do something? Jesus, I don't think you could pull this off, but if you can, would you be willing to do something? See, this father is not convinced that Jesus is actually able to do something. And again, he has probably gone to other doctors and other people and tried so many other things. He has tried anything from anyone. And nothing has helped, nothing has worked. So he is looking at a last resort. Saying, I, I don't know if this is going to work or not, Jesus, but if you can do something. See, our doubts lead us to a place where we then look to Jesus and say, well, if you can. I don't really think he can. I'm not sure if you can. It doesn't look like you can. But if you can, would you be willing to do something? Here's a desperate father that hasn't found anything to work. And he looks at Jesus and he uses an if. If you can, would you just do something, anything, take pity on us and help us. Now Jesus says something, and if you've been following along with our Bible reading plan, we've been reading through one chapter a day out of Luke all the way through. We'll do that all the way up until uh, the Saturday before Easter. But if you've been doing that, you've been able to probably notice some of Jesus' his mannerisms, his characteristics. You probably notice he's a little sarcastic at times. Here's another, here's another example of him being a little sarcastic. So after this father is just pleading, just laying out his heart, he says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And look at what Jesus says, verse 23. If you can, he repeats him back to, he repeats what he said back to this poor man. Wait, 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 did I hear you right? There's a lot of people, there's a lot of commotion. Did I hear you right? If you can? Are you asking if I can do this? In other words, are you questioning my power? Are you doubting what I can and can't do? If you can? And he goes on, and here's how he truly answers him. If you can, said Jesus. No, 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 look at this. Everything is possible for one who, and what's it say here? Say that word. Believes. If you can? No. Everything is possible for one who believes. Now look at what Jesus did. This is interesting. He flips the perspective on this father. A desperate father, he flips the perspective. When the, the man started out, he said, if you can do something, Jesus, if you can do anything, would you be willing to help? In other words, if you've got the power to do it. So he's questioning the ability of Jesus. And what Jesus says is he flips it around and says, no, no, no. Everything is possible for one who, and what was the word? Believes. He flips and says, no, it has nothing to do with my power. Everything is possible. In other words, I can do anything. The problem, the issue is the one who, say it again, believes. So he flips it. He says, no, no, the problem is not with my power. 
There's no limitations to what I can do. He flips it and says, no, the problem, the issue is your belief. See, there's not a problem with the power of Jesus. The problem, the issue lies in the belief that we have of him. So he takes away that if statement from this man and says, no, it's not if I can. I most certainly can. Everything is possible. The question is, do you believe? If I can, wrong question. Do you believe? He changes the question for this desperate father. That's a big deal. That's a big deal to flip it because now it goes back on this man and he has to look at it again. Okay, well, if it's not about Jesus, it's about me. What do I need to do? How do I respond? And here's the response. And I'll just tell you, in my humble but probably right opinion, here's what I think about this next line. I think this is the most significant and most important response any human ever gives to Jesus. Let me say that again. I think that this next response that we see is the most significant response a human has to Jesus. Here's what he says. Immediately, verse 24, immediately, right on the heels of what Jesus said. Really? If, if I can? No, no, everything's possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed. He didn't just say it. He didn't just think it. He didn't just feel it. No, he exclaimed and declared it. I do believe. He says, I do believe. Man, I believe that you're Jesus. And I believe. And he goes through and probably in his mind starts laying out all the things that he believes for you and me. What do we believe? Well, I believe that Jesus loves me, and I believe that he is the Son of God, and I believe we could go through the list, but look at what he says, because he's not done. I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. I do believe, just not right now. I do believe, but not in this situation. It seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? I believe, but I don't. <laughs> I believe, but I still have some unbelief. I don't think this is a contradiction at all. I think it's honesty. And as we're going to see, Jesus, I believe, wants more honesty than he does certainty. Where he's okay. He can handle it again. He can handle our doubts. So he's like, I believe, but I'm struggling to believe this. That last 400 feet is hard for me to see how this is going to work out. It's hard for me to be able to see how I can get from here to there. That looks to be impossible. That looks to be too much. And just as Jesus kind of flipped it around on this man, this man changes his prayer. His conversation with Jesus changes, doesn't it? Notice early on when he comes before Jesus and he says the if word. He says, well, if you can do anything, would you do something? Would you help my son? Would you help us? Now it's shifted. That was very focused on his boy, on his son. He has a problem, Jesus. If you can do something, would you help him? Now the prayer has changed. If you look at it again, I believe the father says, Help who? This is important. Help who? He says, help me. It's no longer help my son. He says, help me. If the problem is my belief, then Jesus, help me. Oh, that's a big deal. Instead of focusing on the situation and the circumstance and the environment and all the problem around this man, the man says, no, wait a second. I believe, but I'm going to need some help believing even more. I believe, but not enough. As we're talking about what ifs, let me throw out a, a, a what if statement for you all. Hypothetically, what if we changed how we pray? What if instead of asking for God to just fix more, what if we asked for more faith? 
What if instead of asking for God to fix more, that's where this man started. That's where the dad started. Help my son. Fix my son. He has a problem. Jesus, if you can, will you fix it? That's where it started. And then it shifted to, just help me have more faith. Help me have more belief. So what if instead of praying, God, there's a lot in my life I need you to fix, what if we prayed, God, there's a lot in my life, so help me have more faith? Might not change the situation. Might not fix the situation. But is that really the goal? The goal is our belief and our faith to continue to grow. So what if the Father changed how we began to dialogue and discuss with Jesus? It was no longer about the problem. It became about his heart. I do believe but you're going to have to help me. You're going to have to help me with this last 400 feet. Because for me, that's impossible. I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. Here's Jesus' response. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Let me condense this story down just, just briefly, just so we can make sure we're on the same page. Here's what Jesus and this man did. A man came to Jesus. That same man looked Jesus in the eye and doubted Jesus' abilities. He said, if you can. <laughs> he says, I don't believe you. You're going to have to help me with my unbelief, but I don't believe you. So he came to Jesus. He doubted Jesus. He asked Jesus for help. Jesus did it. Here's what I love about that condensed version. Nowhere in there does Jesus say, oh, you don't believe? You don't have enough faith? Well, go get some, and when you get it, come back and we'll have this discussion. No. Even when he doubted, and same for us, when we doubt, guess what? God still shows up. Even in our doubts, God still shows up. Our doubts do not repel God. Our doubts do not push Jesus away like sometimes we feel like they do. Well, if I doubt, then he won't be close to me. If I doubt, he'll be offended. If I doubt, then Jesus won't listen to me. No, he can handle your doubts. He's not offended. His feelings don't get hurt by your doubts as long as you're bringing them to him. Even in our doubts, God still showed up. Love that he didn't require this man to go and fix himself first. We talked about it several weeks ago, didn't we, where Jesus meets us where we are at. He's doing that same thing with this dad here, with this desperate dad. He's meeting him right where he is at. He came to Jesus. He doubted Jesus. He asked Jesus for help, and Jesus showed up, which leads us to believe that doubt is actually not an enemy of our belief. Once again, the guilt and the shame that is usually associated with doubt, we don't see that here at all in the response to Jesus and this dad. Doubt is not the enemy of our belief. I've said it earlier, I'm going to keep saying it, that our doubt is a driver, a very powerful driver that will drive us one of two ways. When you're standing beneath the cables and the 400 feet to go, that doubt will drive you one of two ways, to keep going or to go home. With the doubt in our faith, it's going to lean us, push us, drive us, and direct us to lean into Jesus, or it's going to say, no, no, I can't handle this. That seems impossible. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't see how that could ever work, so it must not be true. When we look at the last 400 feet, where does our doubt lead us? Where does our doubt drive us? 
in reality, most of us face a lot of things that are impossible every single day. We deal with a lot of the impossible. We have just learned through everyday life how to cope and manage and even overcome some of those impossibilities. I'm short, so I have more, impossibility things, more impossible things I deal with than you do. For example, changing light bulbs. It's a lot harder for me than it probably is for you. In fact, early on in our marriage, Becky would say, Brian, a light bulb's out. And I said, no, I'm short. I can't do it. It's your fault you married a short guy. If there was something I could do, I would. But Becky, even on tiptoes, I can't do anything about it. You are going to have to just live your life in darkness because I cannot change the light bulb. I tried that and it didn't go over very well. Because what does she do? She says, no, Brian, there's a simple fix for that. Out in the garage is a stepladder. Go and get it. No, you don't understand. I'm short. God has made me this way. It is impossible for me to change that light bulb by myself. Now, that actually is true. It is impossible for me to change a light bulb by myself because, of course, I am short. I'd like to see any of you try it by yourself anyway. But what do you do? You get a step ladder and you take one step. You take two steps, and all of a sudden, in some magical way, the impossible has now become very possible, all because of something that helped me do it. Of course, I couldn't do it on my own. That's why you have to have help. You know, above your refrigerator, we have one of these. I think you probably do, too. There's like this little cabinet above your, or your refrigerator that is completely useless, like, I don't even know why they put it there. You, if you put something in there, it's stuff that you never, ever, ever plan on using or seeing. You probably, if I were to guess, you probably don't even know what's in that top cabinet, do you? My wife knows what's in that cabinet. She's one of the few people in the world that uses things that actually come from that cabinet. I was like, can't we put those where they're more accessible? Well, we don't have room anywhere else, so that's where it goes. So a couple times a year, she needs a vase out of that cabinet. And she'll say, Brian, I need that vase out of the cabinet. I said, what cabinet? The one above the refrigerator. We have one above the refrigerator? That's weird. I need it out. Hey, you're not going to be able to get it. Why? Because I'm short. And it's impossible for me to reach. Becky, you're asking me to do something that is impossible for me to do. How could you? Get the stepladder, Brian. It'll be fine. <laughs> so I get my stepladder out of the garage, and I take two steps up my stepladder, and all of a sudden... As if by a miracle, I can reach the impossible. I can do something that I would have never been able to do without something so brilliant as the stepladder. See, we deal with the impossible every day, but we have mechanisms to help us with the impossible. What's your 400 feet that you don't think you can make? What's the 400 feet that you look at and you're just full of doubt? You say, I don't think I can make that. That might be impossible. You know what? I'll validate that. I bet whatever that last 400 feet, whatever that mountain is, whatever that impossible thing that it is in your life that you're doubting, I would even venture to guess it probably is impossible for you to do by yourself. I bet you're correct in your thinking. Because there's a lot of things that we deal with in life that are most certainly impossible for us to do on our own. We need help. That's what this man got right. He said, I believe there's a lot I still don't believe. And here's the key part. Remember what his prayer was? Two words. Help who? Help me. He looked Jesus square in the face and he did several things. He looked Jesus in the eye and he said, I don't believe you, but I want you to help me believe you. Oh, that's powerful. Jesus, I don't believe you right now. There's a lot of things I believe about you, but there's a lot I don't believe. 
But Jesus, I want you to be the one to help me. Where do your doubts drive you? Where do they direct you? Towards Jesus or away from Jesus? Here's a simple way to answer how you know which way you're being driven. Well, who are you asking help from? If you're asking Jesus for help, that means it's probably driving you closer to him. If you've got your doubts and you start going to everybody else, well, it's probably driving you away from Jesus. I love how a commentary writer, in talking specifically about this story, here's how he kind of summed up, at least from his opinion, what it means to be driven by doubt, but driven into the arms of Jesus. Here's what he says. The believer knows that his faith and obedience are always deficient. In other words, not enough, not good enough. And he will frequently ask God to enable him to live the life that pleases God. Here it is. If left to our own strength and our own faith, we would never make it. And I could not agree more. If you're expecting to walk through this life just based on the faith that you have on your own, you will not make it. Faith is something that Jesus gives us and grows in us and develops in us and matures in us. If you try to just have faith in isolation, I agree with the commentator here. You will not make it. So here's how to apply that. How do we deal with those doubts? How do we lean in and ask Jesus for help? Here's what I would suggest. Give Jesus your 1%. Maybe even write that down. Give Jesus 1%. Seems a little... Aren't we supposed to give Jesus our everything? Isn't he supposed to be our all? He's supposed to have my whole heart, my whole mind, all my strength, all my soul. Aren't we supposed to give Jesus like our 110%? In some context, yes, but stay with me on this one. This father had very, very little belief in Jesus, yet that's what he brought to Jesus. He brought him his 1%. What if you brought Jesus your 1%? Because if you have 99% of it figured out, flip it around. If you've got 99% of things figured out, do you really need Jesus? If you're that certain of everything else in your life, if you've got 99% of it figured out, Jesus has 1% to work in. That's not that impressive. But when you bring Jesus your 1% and says, Jesus, I can't do the rest of this on my own, he has a whole lot of room to work and just blow you away with how he will work in your life. I believe in you 1%, Jesus. <laughs> Help me with the other 99%. Help me get from here to there. Give him your 1%. We see this a couple other times in scripture where Jesus is asked or even gives us permission to ask him, we need some faith from you. Like, I can't do this on my own. Luke chapter 17 speaks to one of them. And if you've been in church long enough, you've probably heard this quote. It's on Christian greeting cards and all sorts of things. Mugs, you might have a mug in that top cabinet that has this written on it. If you have faith the size of a, say it if you know it, mustard seed. Look at all you guys, all good Sunday school people growing up. You do have that mug. Go and look. I bet you have a mug with that on it. But here's what you probably don't know. The context of which Jesus said that. Do you know what happened right before Jesus said that or what caused him to say that? Good. If you did, this would have made for a really awkward moment because then you could come up here and preach. No, here's what, let me read it to you. Luke chapter 17, five and six. Five is preceding that famous mustard seed quote. Look at this. The apostles, in other words, the closest ones to Jesus, said to the Lord, said to Jesus, increase our faith. In other words, I can't do what you're asking me to do, Jesus. In other words, we can't do what you're asking me to do. What you're asking us to do is impossible. So Jesus, we need you to increase our faith. Don't miss that. It's not we need to increase our faith. It's Jesus, you need to increase our faith. Do you see the difference? 
Yeah, we have to start somewhere, I believe. (laughs) But Jesus, you're going to have to increase it. And then we get the famous line that's on your coffee mug. Jesus replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Jesus says something very similar again. We're say to that mountain and it will be moved and thrown into the sea. So there's the idea there is, well, faith does a lot, but Jesus has to give it to us and increase it. Now, here's some fun little homework. I won't spoil it for you. Here's, if you want to dig in a little bit deeper to God's word, read what Jesus asked the apostles to do that led them to say, I need more faith. Jesus, give us more faith. I think you will be shocked at what Jesus told them to do, that then their response was, we can't, that's impossible. You need to give us more faith. So go back and read. I just read five and six out of Luke chapter 17. Read Luke 17, one through four, and give me a text or shoot me something on social media. Let me know next week if you looked at it, because it's interesting. Psalm 73 says something very similar, more poetic terms. It says, my flesh and my heart may fail. That 400 feet I can't do. We're devastated, we're discouraged, we are are lacking the motivation, we have no inspiration, we think it's impossible, my flesh and my heart might fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In other words, it's not up to me to sustain my faith. Yes, I need to put myself in the right environments to fan the flame of my faith, but here, God is my strength, he is my portion, he is the giver and the grower and the developer of my faith and my belief. So give him your 1% and watch him grow it. Give him your 1%. Start with where you're at. I believe, and then there's a lot I don't believe. Doubt's not the enemy of your faith. One of the phrases we say here quite a bit, it's become something very personal to me that, well, I'm leader of the church, so you get to hear it a lot of the times too, is we stumble in the, do you know the last part of it? The right direction. We stumble in the right direction. That phrase came from this story. Because for me, this is a perfect picture of stumbling in the right direction. Again, this man looked Jesus in the eye and says, I don't believe you, but I want to. I don't believe that you can do anything, but you're going to have to help me believe it. To me, that's stumbling in the right direction. His eyes are on Jesus, but he's stumbling along the way. I want you to think of a list. If you want to do this, maybe truly physically, grab your worship guide or if you're taking notes. If not, do a mental exercise with me. On one side, I want you to write down, I do believe. Because that's what this man said. I do believe. And I believe like probably you believe a lot of the same things about Jesus. We've said some of them already, that Jesus is God's one and only son. That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus loves me. I believe that he died on the cross. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe. Go through some beliefs. Even truly do this this week. Begin to just write down, I believe, I believe, I believe. What do you believe about Jesus? On the other side, if you were to make another column... Help me with my unbelief. What do you not believe right now? What are those doubts? Finances, relationships, health, situations, problems, work, culture, neighbors, kids, parents, parenting, spouses. What are you having a hard time believing is going to work out? I believe, but Jesus, you're going to have to help me with my unbelief. Don't run away from your doubts. Allow them to drive you into the arms of Jesus. But you have to make sure you're asking him for help. He is your help. He is the one that's going to move you from the 1% all the way across. He's the one that's going to get you the rest of that 400 feet, that last 400 feet. Let me leave you with this. Hebrews chapter 12 says this. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, basically the writer of Hebrews is referring to the chapter right before it, chapter 11, the hall of faith. Once again, if you grew up on Sunday school, in Sunday school, it's a list of Moses and Noah and Abraham and all these great stars of the Bible, of all the faith and the belief that they had. So he says, man, because of all of their faith, this great cloud of witnesses, these great examples, here's how we apply them. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And here it is. And let us run with perseverance. That last 400 feet is hard. It's difficult. It might be the hardest part of the trip. The mountain that you're trying to overcome that seems impossible, like I said, it is probably impossible, which means it's going to be super hard. But we run with perseverance. In other words, we don't give up. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Help me get through this. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Read this last part with me because it describes who Jesus is. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, say it with me, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We fix our eyes on Jesus. And even though this father, desperate as he was, doubted Jesus, his eyes were still focused on Jesus. He can handle your doubts, but keep Doubts and all, keep your eyes focused on Jesus. And why? The, the writer of Hebrews tells us why we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Because he is the pioneer of our faith. In other words, he created it. He's the perfecter of our faith, meaning he develops it. Some translations even say that he's the author of our faith. He wrote it. He gives you that faith and he develops that faith and he grows that faith. If you look him in the eye and say, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. What do you believe? Where do you need help with your unbelief? Bring your doubts and all to Jesus. Because we can trust him and doubt him as long as our eyes are still on him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for how you respond to us in our moments of doubt. God, I pray that you take away any of the shame. I pray that you take away any of the guilt associated with our doubts. I pray that in this moment, whatever the last 400 feet it is that we are are scared of, that we are afraid of, that seem impossible or might really, realistically be impossible. Whatever mountain that's in front of us, that we just don't have the belief that we can make it through. God, would you help us believe? Not believe that we can do it, but believe that you can. May our eyes stay fixed on you. God, if there's someone here this afternoon that has not said, I believe for the first time, may that happen right here, right now, that we don't have to have all the answers, that the Jesus I know not only can handle our doubts, but he prefers honesty over certainty any day. So maybe we just start with an I believe. And then we need some help with everything else. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Jesus, we love you. And we trust you. May our doubts drive us to you. 